0: Well, we've made it. Mark chapter 11. Finally, after several weeks in Mark chapter 10, after several months in the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, we have now made it to chapter 11. And this is significant because if you were going to divide the Gospel of Mark into two basic sections, you would divide it based upon the first 10 chapters and then chapters 11 through 16. And let me explain the difference. The majority, the vast majority, 99.9% of Jesus' earthly ministry takes place in the first 10 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. The last several chapters only include a period of about a week. The vast majority in the first half, a very small portion in the latter half. If you were to divide the Gospel of Mark into two sections, you would title the first section, Mark chapter 1 through 10, with the title, Jesus the Servant, and note that Mark is presenting Jesus as the ultimate servant, the servant and his service, because we examine Jesus' earthly ministry. Beginning there at the Jordan River, spending the majority of the time focusing on the region there in Galilee, going out into areas known uh, predominantly for their Gentile populations, there in Tyre and Sidon, spending time up in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, The first 10 chapters is Jesus the servant and his service. But we begin now looking at Jesus the servant, but instead of his service, we're now going to begin to see him as his sacrifice. This final week of Jesus' life begins With chapter 11, join me with verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now our scene of activity, they drew near to Jerusalem. Jesus is traveling at this point with quite a crew. No doubt he's got his 12 apostles with him. There is a great multitude of pilgrims uh, that had joined him there in Galilee, are making the journey to Jerusalem with him. I love the fact that at this point, as they drew near to Jerusalem, who else is with Jesus now? A man known as Blind Bartimaeus, formerly known as Blind Bartimaeus, presently known as simply Bartimaeus, because Jesus in Jericho has healed him of his blindness. Jesus had told him he could go his way, but he said, no, I'm going to follow you. And he's with Jesus as they drew near. Jesus is finally reaching his destination. We've mentioned this on numerous occasions, but several weeks ago, Jesus started a direct and deliberate journey to Jerusalem, and he's finally arriving, and we're told that he passes through Bethpage and Bethany, arriving at the Mount of Olives. Now, if you're traveling east to west, you're beginning there at the Dead Sea, where the Jordan River enters the Dead Sea. You're working your way, the 20-mile trek, through the Judean wilderness, you're getting to Jericho. From Jericho, you're progressing towards Jerusalem. The two-mile marker would be a suburb known as Bethany. And the word Bethany just means house of dates because it was known for this particular fruit. If you're progressing out of Bethany on your way, still traveling to Jerusalem, the one-mile marker would be this town, this suburb known as Bethpage. Literally, House of Figs. It was known for its fig trees. Both of the two cities are on the eastern slope of what we know as the Mount of Olives. And speaking of the Mount of Olives, the title fits the description because it was known for its lush olive groves. Not only that, but a big garden at the base of the Mount of Olives was known as gar- Gethsemane or the, gar- uh, the, uh, the Garden of the Olive Press. It was known for its olives. The Mount of Olives, the western slope, is only about a quarter mile from Jerusalem. Matter of fact, if you were to Google images of Jerusalem or Temple Mount or Dome of the Rock, you're gonna get this panoramic view of Jerusalem. It's the most common traditional uh, vantage point that you would get of Jerusalem, and that picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. So that gets you a vantage point. Jesus is traveling out of Jericho, Bethany, Bethpage. He's now at the Mount of Olives. The only thing separating the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, which was situated on Mount Moriah, was a valley known as the Kidron Valley. And Jesus has arrived to Jerusalem, to celebrate what was known as the Feast of Passover. There were three Jewish feasts that were known as pilgrimage feasts. These were feasts that people would typically mark on their calendars to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Passover, Pentecost, which would come 50 days later, and then the Feast of Tabernacles were the three pilgrimage feasts. Passover, for the student of Scripture, was the celebration of the Jews... Uh, marking, signifying God's deliverance of the people out of Egypt. This feast is two, 3,000 years old at this point, marking this incredible deliverance of God, of the Jewish people, from the ha- uh, via the hands of Moses, from the hands of Pharaoh, out from their bondage and their captivity. Moses, let my people go. Ten plagues come into the land because of uh, Pharaoh's stubbornness. The result, the final plague, was the angel of death. And Moses told the Hebrew people that if they were to kill a lamb and mark the doorposts with the blood of the lamb, that the angel of death would pass over that particular house, sparing the firstborn son. But any house that didn't have the blood, the covering, well, the firstborn would die. The angel of death would pass over those marked by the blood of the lamb but would take the firstborn of those who hadn't. And this particular tragedy that rocked Egypt was enough to break the will of Pharaoh. And he sends the people out. And this festival, this feast, the feast of Passover, is what Jesus is arriving to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now you should note that Passover won't officially begin until Thursday at 6 p.m. Now, the way that the Jews work their calendar, the way that they mark the beginning and the end of a day is different than the way that we do. The Jews viewed, according to Genesis chapter 1, evening and morning as the first day. And so the day began uh, at 6 p.m., and then it would conclude at 6 p.m. And so the first part of the day was in the dark, nighttime, and then it was followed by daytime. And so Passover would have officially begin 6 p.m. Thursday evening, but you should note that the entirety of the feast kind of took place over a period of seven days. Jesus is arriving here in Jerusalem the Sunday before Passover. Now, you should note that this is the first time that Mark records Jesus visiting Jerusalem, but this is not the first time that Jesus has visited Jerusalem. Many of the other gospel narratives note that this was not the first feast that Jesus frequented, that he would often go to Jerusalem, engaged in lots of ministry in Jerusalem, in Judea. Mark is presenting Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem as a signifying event, as we've mentioned, basically is the dividing mark of Jesus' earthly ministry. Speaking of his earthly ministry, Jesus' arrival here in Jerusalem will officially mark the final week of his earthly ministry. The next seven days, this next week is known as Jesus' week of passion. And it marks significant, it's significant, it marks this week is the most significant seven days in the history of planet Earth. I would challenge you to find one other week in the history of the planet that has yielded a bigger effect on the trajectory of humanity. Whether you're a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic, or even a Buddhist, regardless of your religious persuasion, without a doubt, this week, the events that occur in Jerusalem during this seven-day period change humanity forever. As a matter of fact, we have lots of holidays that surround themselves based upon some of the events of this week, from Palm Sunday, this particular day, to Great Thursday, to Good Friday, ultimately Resurrection Day, the following Sunday, also known as Easter. And to understand what's about to happen, you should understand the atmosphere. Let me paint for you a picture of what's happening, the general atmosphere, the feeling of Jerusalem as Jesus sets his sights as he makes his way to the city. First, Jerusalem is packed. The normal population of Jerusalem would have typically hovered about half a million people, 500,000. However, during Passover, Josephus tells us, a first century Jewish historian, that the population would swell three times the normal size. Two to three million people pack into Jerusalem and the surrounding suburbs. This is a very small area with now a very dense population. It reminds me of a town called Hemet in California. I went to Bible college in Southern California And Hemet was this little podunk off the beaten path, out in the desert community, about 20, 30 miles away from where I was living. And the interesting thing about Hemet is that for the majority of the time, the population of Hemet was somewhere around 25,000. And yet, when the rain and the weather of the north, Oregon, Northern California, Washington, started to turn the population of Hemet would swell from about 25,000 to about 350,000 as all of the old people in the north packed up into their RVs and made their way down to the dry climate and lots and lots of golf courses. Hemet was known for its golf courses. I only really know this because my grandparents would always visit me during my time in Bible college by spending three months 20 miles away in the town of Hemet. The place is packed. The population has swelled. People are on top of other people. Crowd control is at a max. The fire marshals are freaking out. But in addition to Jerusalem being packed, you should note that it's live. I mean, it's hopping. I mean, Jerusalem during Passover, the only real good comparison I can give you is kind of think of it like, Jew Mardi Gras. I mean, really, that's what's happening here. It's like a whole bunch of Jewish people are making their way, packed into a tight, condensed area, and they're singing, and they're dancing. The mood is joyous. It's festive. It's celebratory. They're religious. They're patriotic. Pilgrims from all over the empire have traveled to Jerusalem for this festival from all over the empire, from Rome to the far reaches in Spain to northern Africa. They have made their way for Passover. And as they're making their way, they're singing. They're dancing. Matter of fact, Scripture gives us two different sets of songs, psalms, that they would be singing as they make their way during these pilgrimage festivals. You had first the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118. A little reading this week. This is what Jesus, the disciples, blind Bartimaeus, the pilgrims, this is what they're singing as they're coming out of Jericho through Bethany and Bethpage, as they get to the Mount of Olives. These are the songs. They're singing the songs of the ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. It is live, it's patriotic, it's hopping, but also it's anxious. Jerusalem is on pins and needles. Because of the increased population and the patriotic nature of the gathering. I mean, don't forget the context of Passover. This is when God, they're celebrating an event when God supernaturally led the Hebrew people out of captivity and bondage by destroying the enemy, right? And where are the people right now? Under Roman occupation, control, and persecution, And so a big gathering of people to celebrate kind of Independence Day when they're not an independent people was enough to kind of freak out the Romans. Not to mention, if you begin to examine the first century, some of the events that would be leading up to this and now later events, Rome was on pins and needles because there had been multiple revolts that had taken place among certain pockets of the Jewish communities there in Judea. Josephus tells us that the increased presence of the Roman guard would have been ten times the norm during Passover than any other time. And to make matters worse, the mob, the multitude, this two to three million people, they are filled with a suspenseful anticipation of the arrival of a man known as Jesus of Nazareth. A man that the rumor mill had been churning that he could very well be the Messiah, that he was on the way to Jerusalem, that this could be the moment that he leads a revolution. People are traveling with weapons and arms. There's this anticipation that something's going to happen, something's going down. But well, we're told that Jesus the atmosphere established, he sends two of his disciples up ahead. He tells them, go into the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat and loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just tell them the Lord has need of it. And immediately he'll send it. So they went their way. They found the colt tied by the door outside the street. They loosed it. As Jesus had predicted, some of those who stood say, well, what are you doing, stealing this colt? And they spoke to them as Jesus had commanded them, so they let them go. Now the scene of activity here. Jesus sends ahead two disciples. Mark doesn't give us the identity of these two disciples. The Gospel of John identifies them as Peter and John, which explains why Mark provides details here that some of the other writers don't. Peter is an eyewitness, so he's telling us through Mark. Jesus told John and I to go ahead. He told us the atmosphere, what we would find. There would be people that would say, what are you doing with the cult? You're stealing it. This is what he told us to say. Peter is giving us more information than anyone else, and I love the fact that it's Peter and John, because if you're a student of Scripture, you will see in the events that will happen in the next month and a half that Peter and John become a dynamic duo, that they end up stepping to the forefront of a very new church to provide explanation, to confront the Sanhedrin. Could it be that Jesus sends these two, not by accident, but in a way to prepare them for future ministry? Jesus tells them to go find a cult no one has sat. Tells them if they're run into any problems, just tell the owner the Lord has need of it. And that phrase... The Lord has need of it. Think about that for a moment. If you're going to come up with oxymorons or phrases of contradiction, you know what I mean. We have all kinds of oxymorons within our culture. Statements combining two things that seem polar opposite. Example, Microsoft works. Doesn't really work. And so that would be obviously an oxymoron. But this phrase here, this phrase... The Lord has need. It seems to be a contradiction, which leads me to an observation. It's true, it's obvious that Jesus, over and over and over and over again, willingly places himself into a dynamic in ministry where he needs to partner with people to accomplish his will. Consider for a moment, Jesus. You know, Jesus is kind of the guy who improvised. He really had nothing of his own. I mean, everything was kind of like brought into the story by somebody loaning it out. The crib and the stable, not Jesus's. It was borrowed. Jesus, his boat, for ministry, that he would go out and he would travel around Galilee. It wasn't his boat, borrowed it. Even his taxes, right? To pay his taxes, Jesus just borrowed money from a fish. It wasn't his money, he just borrowed it from a fish. Peter, go out, throw your hook in, you're gonna pull up a fish, it's gonna have money in it for our taxes. Borrowed money. He would borrow a cross, he'd borrow a tomb. And and since he borrows a colt, not to mention Jesus is constantly a house guest. You know, we have no mention of Jesus' house in Scripture. And during his earthly ministry, he would stay the majority of the time at Peter's home there in Capernaum. He would spend time at the home of Matthew, the tax collector. When he was traveling into Jerusalem, as we'll see in a few, he would stay the night there in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You know, it's a great spiritual mystery to me that Jesus, though he doesn't need to do this, like Jesus doesn't need you and I to do anything. But in regards to accomplishing his will on earth, Jesus over and over and over again willingly chooses to partner with you and I. And let's be honest, that has to be annoying for Jesus. I mean, Jesus can do it all. Jesus doesn't need us. And yet Jesus willingly decides that I'm going to partner in ministry on this earth with you. And that limits him, doesn't it? It limits the creator of the universe to you. And yet this is Jesus' style. Jesus willingly limits himself to you. And I think he does this for three reasons. First, he limits himself to you, his work in the world to your participation in order to demonstrate his power to the world. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 27, Paul says, but God has chosen. He's chosen. He makes a deliberate choice to use the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. (laughs) I'm I take great heart and comfort at that because I'm a fool. But God has chosen the weak things of the world. I also sympathize with that because I'm weak to put to shame the things which which are mighty. That God uses you. He chooses to limit himself by choosing you. To demonstrate to the world by the byproduct of him working in you and through you his great power. Because if people can step back and look at what God has done in and through you, knowing you, God's power is truly magnified. The second reason, I think he limits himself to prepare you and I for eternity. 1 John chapter, uh, I think it's chapter four, verses two and three, we're told that, beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is in everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. God chooses to use you to accomplish his will in the world, not just to demonstrate his power, but to prepare you for a future eternity. That he uses these opportunities to form you and to shape you and to equip you for something much greater than just the here and now. But there's a third reason, and I think it's to bless his disciples with the joy of ministry. In Ephesians Ephesians 2, verse 10, we're told that we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word workmanship, it's the Greek word poema, that we are literally his poem, created in Jesus for good works. That Jesus uses us to accomplish things for his kingdom on earth so that we can experience the joy of accomplishing these things. The blessing of ministry. Please realize that the Lord intentionally wants to partner with you in ministry. And ministry to your spouse. And ministry to your kids. And ministry in reaching the lost in the mission of your church, that Jesus has chosen you. He's chosen to limit himself by choosing you, but nonetheless, he's chosen you. How amazing is it that the Lord has need of you? Then they brought the colt to Jesus. And through their clothes on the colt, Jesus sat on it, and many spread their clothes out on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees. John tells us these were palm branches. And they spread them out on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed. So Jesus is making his way down the Mount of Olives. This short, narrow trail across the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem. There are people going ahead of him. There are people behind him. Jesus is in the middle. And we're told that they're singing. They're crying out directly from Psalm 118, one of these Hallel Psalms, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this is not one declaration. They are singing this in song over and over and they're waving these branches and they're laying them in front of Jesus. This is quite a scene. I want to make two observational questions. I want to pose two questions that we should consider to unpack the significance of what's happening here. First, as I read through this, in context to the rest of the Gospel of Mark, why did Jesus desire to enter Jerusalem in such a specific and particular way? And secondly, why the dramatic shift and the way that Jesus addressed kind of his public perception or how he presented himself in a public way. You know, time and time again, if you've been with us, you've observed this, that Jesus has actively, deliberately, and repeatedly discouraged any kind of public praise or adulation. As a matter of fact, he has radically opposed any kind of attention or praise. But in this instance, something has radically changed. I mean, what is happening here, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it stands in a stark contrast to the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry, his public relations up to this point. There were other times when Jesus healed uh, the, the, the lame man, when Jesus healed uh, the, the leprous man, that people were crying. And Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Keep it on the down low. When Jesus fed the multitude, the 5,000, we're told that they're wanting to immediately at that point hail him as king. And he forcibly causes the disciples to get back in the boat to go to the other side. Why the change in Jesus's, well, the way he handles himself and his public ministry. What changes at this point in ministry to cause such a shift? I think there are two reasons, two reasons why we see a change in the way that Jesus handled his public ministry, why he enters Jerusalem this way at this time first. and the triumphal entry, it was time. The timing was right for Jesus to officially present himself to Israel as the Messiah. Now, this is not something that Jesus has denied about himself. On numerous occasions leading up to this juncture, Jesus has affirmed his identity. He's been teaching the people the keys of the kingdom. The people are recognizing him as the Messiah. Jesus has not shied away from the rumors circulating that he's the Messiah, but he chooses at this point to publicly embrace the identity as he's traveling from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron into Jerusalem. The people are declaring Jesus as their coming king. They're declaring that he's the Messiah. And don't think that Jesus entering Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, is an accident or was without significance. According to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, There was a prophecy that the Messiah, when presenting himself to to, to Israel, when presenting himself to Jerusalem, would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And we're told that they cried out, Hosanna. The word Hosanna literally means save now. And how true that declaration really was in light of what Jesus had come to accomplish. But ironically, They really didn't know what they were crying out. In the people's mind, they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for Jesus to come into Jerusalem. They're crying out, Hosanna, save now. Why? Because they're looking to Jesus to save Israel, to liberate Israel from the Roman occupation, their present situation, versus what Jesus had really come to accomplish, which was the liberation of people from the bonds of sin. Hosanna, save now. It was accurate. They just were a little off in their understanding. The disciples even don't get it. In the Gospel of John, John gives us a detail here about this. He, he tells his, his audience that at this point, even as they're entering Jerusalem, even as people are crying out, that they had no idea what was really happening. They thought they did, but they didn't know until after the resurrection. As they're contemplating and looking back on these events, that it's like, oh my goodness, what happened that day? What We were crying out. We didn't know the significance of it until this moment after the resurrection. Now, we we don't often do this as we're traveling through the Gospel of Mark. One of our ground rules initially, if you can remember all the way back to when we started, was that we're studying the Gospel of Mark. We're not doing an in-depth study of necessarily the life of Jesus. We're not even doing a harmony of the gospel study. And so very rarely do we ever reference back to other accounts of the story with one caveat. If it's important, let's just say crucial to our understanding of what's actually happening, then we should. So I'm going to invite you to turn for a moment to Luke chapter 19. If you're using the app this morning, it's already listed there for you so you don't have to turn. Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. Because Jesus, as he's entering Jerusalem, as they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. The Pharisees, the religious establishment, these leaders, they come to Jesus and they tell Jesus that he needs to tell the multitude to shut up, to stop praising him as the Messiah. Interesting that they didn't have the authority to tell the people to shut up. But they come to Jesus because Jesus would have had the authority. But Jesus, he utters an interesting response. He answered and said to them, he says, I tell you that if these, speaking of the multitude, this crowd, if they should keep silent, the stones, and if you've ever been to Jerusalem, if you've ever been to Israel, there are lots of rocks. The stones would immediately cry out, The rocks would begin to sing the same thing that the people were uttering. And as he drew near, he saw the city, and we're told that he wept over it. Now, now we don't get that often in our presentation of the triumphal entry, do we? All the little cartoons that we give of the triumphal entry have like a Fabio Jesus, white Jesus on the donkey with hair flowing in the wind and the palm branches and he's got this smile on his face. Note, Jesus is weeping as he's making his way into the city and he says, if you had known, even you, especially in your day, and that's emphatic, your day, significant, The things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden in your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. And they will level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone upon another. Because, and why would this happen? You did not know Time of your visitation. Now, Jesus says two important things to the religious leaders here. He's saying, I can't tell the people to stop crying out because the stones would, but you should be crying out. You should know what's happening right now at this moment as I'm making my way into the city. You should know, you religious leaders, you should be aware what's occurring. But, secondly, Since you don't or are oblivious to it or are in abject denial, there will be tragic consequences. It's a heavy, heavy statement. Now, why would Jesus say this in a moment that was supposed to be, well, triumphal? You need to place the entire scene in context. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. It takes on a whole new level of significance. When you place it, Well, in context to something that occurred about four or 500 years earlier, a prophecy that had been given to Daniel. Now, I invite you, once again, we don't do this often, but I think it's important for you to see this as we read it in order for you to understand what's happening. Please turn to Daniel chapter nine, because we're gonna read just a few verses. Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 through 26. And as you're turning there, And trust me, you're going to want to read this as we dissect it so that you don't kind of get confused with some of the language. But as you're turning, let me give you some context. Daniel is in Babylon in exile. Babylon has sacked Jerusalem. People have been taken into exile, been scattered across the Babylonian Empire. And Daniel is really worried. Daniel's a godly man a holy man, a righteous man. But he's really concerned because here he is in Babylon, a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, and his ultimate concern is that God was done with Israel. That a series of poor decisions and obvious rebellion of the people had led them into a dynamic that God was done with them. Now, God appears to Daniel And he calms his fears by providing him a prophetic vision and a prophetic timeline for his future dealings with Israel. It's as though that God comes to Daniel and says, listen, calm down, Dan. I'm not done with Israel. As a matter of fact, let me go ahead and give you a timeline. Not only am I not done, but I'm going to give you a prophetic vision of how I'm going to handle the people of God moving forward. This prophecy, student, is known as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. Verse 24. We're not going to, by the way, get into the entirety of the the prophecy, but we're going to look at this in regards to how it relates to Jesus' triumphal entry. Verse 24. Seventy weeks, God speaking to Daniel, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street will be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, coupled with these seven weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, speaking of the temple, and the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of war, desolations are determined. Now, a couple things you should note first. God makes it clear. He's speaking of the Hebrew people and he's speaking of the city of Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, Daniel. Daniel. The Hebrews, and your holy city, that being Jerusalem, 70 weeks. Now, 70 weeks, this is kind of a confusing but important phrase because we look at it literally and we think of a literal 70 weeks. But the word weeks shouldn't be translated as a literal seven-day period. As a matter of fact, it sets up more of a, a, a designation of groupings, 70 weeks should literally be translated as 70 groupings of seven. Now, the question is, is well, what's the context for the seven? And I'm of the opinion, I think there's ample evidence that we don't have time to get into the particulars, that God is speaking to Daniel concerning years. So, when God says that there are 70 weeks, he's literally saying there are 70 groupings of seven years, meaning that God was establishing. 490 years to wrap up his dealings with Israel. Daniel, I'm not done with Israel. As a matter of fact, I got 400 years of involvement left for these people. The second important note, that God then tells Daniel when or at what point the 490-year timeline begins, when the stopwatch starts. He says, look back, that it will begin with the command to restore and build Jerusalem. And we don't have to guess historically when this command was given. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, we're told and given specific timeline that the Persian king Xerxes, Artaxerxes, he issues the command for the Jewish people to return and to restore and build Jerusalem. He issues the command historically on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, Daniel is then given another monumental event on the timeline. God says that from the command, this future command, to Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks And 62 weeks, or literally 69 sets of seven years, which equals 483 years or 173,880 days. That's important because you've got to use the Babylonian calendar, which doesn't use a 365 day, but a 360 day Year, 173,880 days from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until what event happens? The presentation to the people of whom? Messiah the Prince. It's interesting that if you extrapolate out from March 14, 445 BC, 173,880 days, this places you on the date, April 6, 32 AD, the date that most biblical historians mark. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, presenting himself as whom? The Messiah. Why would Jesus not have wanted this public presentation of himself until this moment? Because it was this moment that he was supposed to, that God had willed it for it to be so, that Jesus presents himself as the people, that this was your day. No, back in Luke, Jesus says this to the people. This was your day. And if the people weren't crying out to give testimony that this was the day, a supernatural event would occur that the rocks would begin to sing out because you can't stop what's about to happen on this day. Jesus rebukes the religious leaders. Why? They should have known. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees woke up that morning, Their iPhones should have chirped. Their iCal or Google Calendar, whatever you prefer, should have popped up with a notification. Ding, 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 the Messiah is showing up today. It's that specific. 173,880 days from a command we know the exact date of. They should have known this. And yet they were oblivious to it. Jesus' arrival was a direct fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy and the religious leaders. They either should have known or they didn't know. But Jesus tells them this: You did not know the time of your visitation. And then why is he weeping? Why is Jesus weeping? Jesus is weeping because he knows the rest of the prophecy. He knows the rest of what Daniel predicted what would happen. And at this point, what Jesus knows is about to happen. According to Daniel, we're told that what happens after Messiah the Prince is presented, we're told that the Messiah shall be cut off. And what happens? And the people of the Prince, good evidence to state that this is the Romans, who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be like a flood. Till the end of the war of desolations are determined. Jesus goes even so far as to say, they won't even leave one stone left upon itself. The destruction will be that complete. Now, the fulfillment of this took place in two phases. Later this week, Jesus, the Messiah, will be cut off. He will be crucified. But then, in 70 AD, because they didn't know the time of their visitation and because they rejected Jesus, destruction came. Titus Vespasian would sack Jerusalem. And by accident, the temple would be set ablaze. And because of all the gold that was on the temple, and it was quite a sight, the gold melted and began to seep down into the the cracks and the crevices of the stones of the temple. And according to Josephus, to extract the gold, the very valuable gold, they literally did not leave one stone left upon itself. They dismantled everything in order to get the gold out, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, also fulfilling Daniel's. So Jesus, why the change and approach? Why the shift in what's occurring? Why would Jesus, with his entire earthly ministry, kind of reject praise and push off public you know, uh, uh, adulation. And then at this moment, accept it, embrace it. As a matter of fact, you could even say orchestrated it. Why? Because he's officially presenting himself as their king, even knowing that they would reject him and that there would be judgment to follow. But there is another reason why I think Jesus presents himself in this way. And that is the fact that Jesus was presenting himself as the ultimate Passover sacrifice. It's not an accident that Jesus chose this day. That this day was the day. Because Sunday was significant. It was on Sunday, and the seven-day celebration of the Passover, that the sacrifice, the sacrifices, the sacrificial lamb, would be presented to the priests for inspection. It would be presented. And it would either be accepted or rejected, but the lambs were presented for sacrifice. And then the rest of the week, they would be inspected, they would be examined in order to ensure spotlessness. We'll see that this takes place with Jesus as well over the next several days. So why would Jesus present himself in this way? He's presenting himself as the Passover lamb. The ultimate Passover sacrifice, the blood on the doorposts, the blood that would be shed so that death would pass over. You know, it's interesting to note that though Jesus would be rejected by the people as their Messiah, Jesus, he would be accepted by God as the perfect Passover sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. Back to the scene. We're told, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple and we're told that he looked around at all things, but the hour was late, so he goes out to Bethany with the twelve. This kingly procession, it concludes its journey to the temple. Jesus goes in, he evaluates the comings and goings before returning back to Mary and Martha's house in Bethany, the two-mile journey back to the Burbs. We're told in other gospel accounts that when Jesus, he goes into the temple, he looks around, as Mark tells us, that it seems that Jesus is enraged by what he's seeing to the point that the other gospel accounts seem to kind of indicate that Jesus immediately goes on a rampage, overturning the money changers and driving out these people that would make his house a den of thieves. Mark establishes a bit more of a timeline that the other gospel writers don't provide for us. Jesus does enter the temple. He does evaluate what's happening. I'm convinced he's also enraged at this point as to what he's seeing. But because the hour was late, he goes back to Bethany and he cools off. He thinks things through before returning on Monday to kick butt. Now, I love this because there's an observation, a small detail we should take heart. Jesus is aroused to anger, a righteous anger, a holy anger. He sees something happening that irks him, that he he wants to immediately react to. But what does he do? He, He decides that instead of reacting to what he's seeing, he instead wants to act upon what he's seeing. And the best way to do that is to often give yourself some time to cool off. That's good advice, really. Sometimes we see something that really upsets us, that really irritates us. You know, I found that when I immediately react to that, it never works out right. And not only that, my perspective never comes across appropriately. But if I see something and I'm angered by it, and I'm upset by it, it's righteous and it's justified, and I take it the night. I don't shoot off the email. I don't blast the person on Twitter. I uh, avoid the Facebook confrontation. And I just chill out and kick back and relax and allow my emotions to subside and to be able to think with a little more clarity. I might still go the next day and start kicking things over, but at least I'm doing it knowing that I'm making the right decision and I'm approaching it with the right perspective. Before you spout off, take Jesus' approach. Take time and think it through. Now in conclusion, you have to ask, or consider, at least I do. Okay, so Daniel issues this prophecy. It pinpoints the day, this incredible day. And the people, they know Daniel. They know the prophecy. This is an incredible scene. It's an awesome scene. It's a holy scene. It's a significant scene. How in the world do all of these people miss it? Everyone present that day but Jesus missed it. First, the people. I think the people missed out. They missed what was happening because of selfish motivations, You know, they saw Jesus for who they wanted Jesus to be, not for who Jesus really was. And that's a mistake. You know, it is a mistake when we see Jesus and we put Jesus into a box of our own making, where we come to Jesus wanting Jesus to do what we want him to do as opposed to coming to Jesus, dying to self, surrendering our will, and saying, I'm not putting you into a box, I want you to do what you wanna do in my life, not just what I think I want you to do in my life. The people wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, to lead a revolution against the Romans. When Jesus was coming to do something, by the way, much more glorious and relevant, but they missed it. They missed what Jesus could do for them Because they didn't allow Jesus to be Jesus. They were selfishly motivated. They came looking at Jesus for what they could get, not coming to Jesus for what he could do. If you're coming to Jesus with a list of demands, tear them up and come to Jesus with a humility of heart, accepting Jesus for who he is, not for what you're just simply wanting to make him. When it was clear, by the way, that Jesus wasn't going to operate in their box, in the span of about a week, they killed him. They go from hailing him as king, Jesus didn't do what he, what they wanted him to do, and they killed him. So often I see people, they'll come to Jesus, they want Jesus to do this, and he doesn't, because he wants to do something better. And what do they do? They turn on him. They turn on him. May you not be that person. But then you have the religious leaders Who should have known? But they missed out as well. Why? I think it was fear. They feared the repercussions of what accepting Jesus would have for their lives. They knew who Jesus was. But what kept them back is that they they didn't want Jesus to change their life. They knew that if I I accepted Jesus, if I accepted he's the Messiah, if I accepted he's the king, then that means that I'm no longer the master of my own domain. That, That means I'm no longer calling the shots. If I surrender to Jesus, that means I'm not God anymore. And for these religious leaders, they love their power, they love control, they love their authority, they love running their own lives, and they rejected Jesus, not because they doubted who he was, because they didn't want the repercussions for their their own lives if they accepted who he was. Accepting Jesus, it would be a threat to their power and their moral standing. And they, too, were looking for an opportunity to do what? To destroy Jesus. But then you got the Romans. And I know this might be a, a weird angle to take, but you have the Romans of which there are many in the city. And they're also observing this triumphal entry. I'm sure a word has gotten up uh, the chain of command. They're on the lookout. They're armed at their posts. They're also seeing this. And you can imagine that they're kind of laughing. You know, the Romans were not, let me say, they weren't oblivious to triumphal entries. As a matter of fact, they were kind of good at it. Anytime a Roman general would come back from a great victory, they would throw a a procession as the general and and their captives and the spoils and the rest of the army would come back to Rome. They would throw a parade, and it was quite a shindig. You know, it's interesting to note that you would have had to have had 5,000 as a minimum 5,000 captives in battle for them to automatically give you a parade. And if you had 5,000 captives, the general would come in riding on a white stallion. Typically, the conquered king would come in on a donkey. And then all the spoils and the slaves and whatnot would follow. And so you can imagine that the Romans are watching Jesus come in. And the people saying, this is our king. He's our king. They're like, he's on a donkey. What kind of king is that? This is amateur hour. You see, the problem is that the Romans missed out on what was really happening because they were only examining the scene from a worldly perspective versus a spiritual one. Because here's the deal. Jesus wasn't coming into Jerusalem as a physical king. He's going to do that at another time. Matter of fact, they've blocked up a gate trying to keep him out, and he's going to karate chop that sucker down. Jesus is entering Jerusalem here as a king, but not to usher in a physical kingdom, but to do what? To establish a spiritual one. And the Romans missed it. (laughs) Here's the thing, here's the irony. That man on that donkey coming into Jerusalem, if they had really known what was going to happen because of that man, and the events that were about to occur on that week, they would have killed him right there. Because that man riding on a donkey would not just liberate hearts and minds, he would bring down the Roman Empire. He would upset the status quo. In the span of of 200 years, the entire Roman Empire would claim allegiance to that man and not Caesar. You see, they were evaluating this man on a donkey from a worldly perspective. And what they saw, it was foolish. And yet God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Think about it. What would happen in that very city 50 days later? There would be a moving of the Holy Spirit there would be an establishment of a kingdom, a spiritual one. And within the span of a few days, we're told in the book of Acts that there would be, how many converts? 5,000. Like that. It took 5,000 as the minimum to have a Roman perception, a procession into a city. Jesus came in on a donkey. They laughed at him in the span of a, of a month and a half. 5,000 are converted. This event, it's significant and it's important. Please don't overlook how it applies. There are people who miss out on who Jesus is because of selfish motivation. And there are people who miss out because of fear of their life being changed. But there are people who miss out because they're only evaluating things from a temporary, worldly perspective. And this morning, I invite you to come to Jesus for who he is, not fearing what you're going to lose, but the life he's going to provide. And look at this, beyond simply the temporary, but look at a bigger scene of what's occurring. See Jesus as the King of Kings, establishing a real kingdom, in your heart. The triumphal entry for the onlooker might not have been very triumphal in the moment, but it would be. And we'll see how that plays out in the weeks to come. So Father, we thank you for your word, what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.